Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ruby for All. Julie, what is up? It was 35 degrees outside today, and I could not take my kids on a walk to school because it was it, too cold. I told you before the show started, it's a little chilly here too. But when I say chilly here, I mean like 60 degrees, but that's still chilly for me. But I was like, get out of bed. It's cold. <laughs> Wait, so was it 60 degrees in your house or outside? Outside. It's 60 right now. This morning, it was in the 50s. Would you rather be cold or hot? I would definitely, hands down, want it to be spring and summer now. Yep. That's why I like Arizona because it's already almost spring. I don't know what this random cold front is, but it was really nice before it came through and I'm ready for it. <laughs> 60 degrees can mean very differently for like shade and the sun shining down. Like if it's sunny and there's no wind and it's 65, I can deal with that. But Same. I especially struggle with what I'm supposed to wear when it's 65 because am I going to be standing in the sun or am I going to be standing in the shade? Is it going to be windy? I don't know how windy wind is. Yeah, I am the master of layers because I'm always cold. And (laughs) when I used to live in North Carolina, it would be like 30 in the morning and like 70 in the afternoon. And so (laughs) I would biking to class and stuff or skateboarding to class and it's like, oh my God, I'm freezing. I can't feel my hands. I can't feel my face. There's not running down my face. And later that day, I'm profusely sweating. It's like, what is this? That's like getting ready to go skiing. Yeah. You ski? I do. I went on a ski trip, not last week, but the week before. And amazing snow because we got in and then there was a series of snowstorms every other day was it a snowstorm? So we skied every other day after and got this nice, beautiful powder. Nice. I snowboard, but I haven't done it in a while, but I really enjoy it when I get to do it. I did snowboarding too. So I started with skis. Then I switched over to snowboarding because it was like the cool thing to do. I was a teenager at the time. I switched back mainly because my kids are skiing now and it's way easier to be on skis to lift them up if they fall. That makes sense. My dad is a skier. When I saw like the options of like skiing or the snowboarders, like Sean White was really big when I was younger and like snowboarding was like all the race. I'm like, I'm trying to shred. I picked up snowboarding relatively easily. I surfed and I skateboarded and longboarded. And I feel like I'm kind of used to boards. So I kind of picked it up quickly, which was nice. I had a conversation about this with somebody about boards, board sports. Do they actually transfer between them? Like I feel like surfing and skateboarding and snowboarding, even though they're all boards and you're standing like the same way, don't seem like you could transfer the same muscles. It's a lot of balance. You don't use the same muscles. There are a lot of aspects that don't transfer, but in terms of like, I need to balance, like there are muscles like in your like legs and back and stuff that you tune up for balancing better. If you just kind of understand how your balance works a little bit, I think it's a little bit easier. Snowboarding and skateboarding are a lot more similar than surfing. So not one-to-one, but I feel like if you kind of are already a little bit comfortable on a board, then you also don't have that fear aspect too of like, oh, what if I fall? Well, I do too sometimes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So a snowboard, especially if the snow is powdery, I could fall on this powdery snow. It just feels like falling on a cloud, but on a skateboard and falling on cement, I feel like I can't do that. I've broken my elbow doing that and busted things up. 
when I moved from North Carolina, I broke my elbow or like it was a bad fracture basically because I was in a cast. So if you're in a cast, I consider it broken basically. Mm -hmm. And I was about to move to Arizona. My parents had to come down to help me move out because my arm was in a cast and I drove across the country with one arm. Oh my gosh. Wait, which arm was broken? Left. My left arm. Oh, are you right-handed? I am right-handed. Okay. I guess that's a little bit better. (laughs) It wasn't too bad, but I mean, driving across the country in a cast isn't fun. I got to like the corner of Texas and El Paso and I was like, I'm done with the cast. I don't care. Took it off. It wasn't like one of those ones that was wrapped in plaster and stuff. It was like wrapped differently. And so I was able to take it off myself. I don't even remember. Is it like not a hard cast? It was hard, but it was like almost splinted or something. Now I don't really remember. Like, how did I get that off? I don't remember. (laughs) I just know I got it off. I thought you had it it off. The hard plaster casts you do. I've been in plenty of those. It wasn't that, but it was, it was still wrapped though. It was something that I could take off though by myself. I don't remember. Anyway, so we've been hinting at this for a while, but in February, we're going to be doing something fun that was your idea, which I think is going to be a lot of fun where we're kind of going to go through some of our favorite Ruby methods all month for each episode, kind of focusing on a different type of object type. Did I explain that well? Yeah. Well, I came across this idea mainly because I had talked to Colin Jobert about, hey, I want to get better at trying to remember my Ruby methods and just being able to pull it out of a bag more quickly. Because I feel like at work, I don't really get a chance to do that. And so he suggested to do some code wars. So I would try to do one per day and I really liked them. They were very bite-sized. I thought that it would be more like a leet code type thing where those seemed more involved and they were more complex. And I had to learn about all these data structures and algorithms. And I was like, I'm not interested in doing that. But doing the kata every day helped me kind of build up my bag of methods and figured we could chat about some of our favorite methods on the show. Let's do it. Hopefully we'll just stop and remember or figure out the method, if we don't explain it well, if I often get mid explanation, I'm like, wait, I don't know as much about this as I thought I did, but we're going to try. And we're going to start with my favorite method, which is on the array object, which is map. You like to map, Julie? I do. Why do you like it? I feel like I just use it a lot. So map is a method on array that basically returns a new array if the conditions are met that you put inside of the block that map takes. And you can use the block shorthand, which is like an ampersand colon or an ampersand symbol. So like if you had a list of users and you wanted to get all their posts, you could say users.map and colon posts, and that would return you that list, which you wouldn't need to do an active record. But that's one way you could do that. Typically, you pass it a block and you do some sort of logical condition that's like, okay, if the value is over one, add it to my new array. And that's a nice way to take a list of data and convert it into a new list of data that you can then use wherever you want. I do this a lot. I use map all the time. It has an alias called collect that I also like. And I didn't realize collect was an (laughs) alias for map for a little bit. So I was like using collect all over the place. But yeah, I love a map. I love a good map. So map iterates over an array and you pass it a block. If the conditions are met, 
it kind of like shovels into some new array. Yes. And then map once it's done iterating. Map returns an array. I really like the uh, shorthand ampersand colon thing. Yeah. That can be really nice just to shorten some code. If you have a conditional on your method, let's say we had posts and we only wanted to get the ones that were archived. So you can do post.map archived if that's a Boolean, because that would evaluate to true or false. Because basically, whether or not the thing is added to the new array is whether the conditional is true or not. And so archived would be a Boolean, and that would be an easy way to kind of use that shorthand syntax. But if you're doing some more complex logic, then you're probably not going to be able to get away with that. Cool. Array flatten is another one I really like. So a lot of times, if you're using map, you might return several arrays and then store them in a big array. So now you have an array filled with arrays. And what flatten does is it recursively flattens every array inside of the object you're iterating over and returns just one flat array. And there's actually a method called flat map, which will allow you to map, but it will return everything flattened, which is like kind of shorthand. So a lot of times you'll see people do like dot map, then dot flatten. Flat map is a way to skip over that. But Typically, if you're like wanting to put a list of things in a table or a list or something, you're going to want a completely flat array. And so that's where flatten really kind of comes into handy. Does flatten work on nested arrays? So you might have like an array inside of an array inside of an array and that'll still flatten it. Or does it just do one layer? It should be recursive. And I think you can actually pass it level, I believe. Oh, cool. So yes, you can pass it a level. So if you don't call a level, it will recursively flatten everything. So what you were saying, like if we have an array inside of an array inside of an array, everything will be flat if you don't specify a level. But if you have an array with inside of an array, inside of an array, and you only pass it level zero, level zero will take the array and flatten it. It doesn't look like it flattens it at all. Like it just returns the same thing. That's what it looks like. And then if you pass it one, it flattens one level deep. And then if you pass it two, it flattens two levels deep. And if you pass it three, it flattens three levels deep. So like on the Ruby docs, like they have a nested array inside an array inside an array. And when you pass it three, it flattens everything. You pass it zero, it doesn't flatten anything. Hi there, Julie here. I would like to take a moment to thank GoRails for sponsoring this episode. When I was first starting out, I struggled with finding up-to-date content to help me level up. Then I learned about GoRails. Not only does GoRails provide new screencasts weekly, they also have two fantastic instructors that break down complex topics into digestible chunks. On top of that, I really appreciate when they explain the whys behind the subject. One of my favorite walkthroughs is creating your first Ruby gem from scratch. What a great way to learn by stripping down to just the basics. If you care about leveling up as a Ruby engineer, you can't go wrong with GoRails. Check it out at GoRails.com. Flatten passing in zero literally just returns the same array, which is very interesting. That is something I noticed that when using methods, I have just pulled up the Ruby docs because I think a lot of these methods, you can pass in blocks and you can pass in parameters. And sometimes you don't know that you can do that until you open up the docs and then you realize, oh, These are these other cool things that I could do with it. Or sometimes it returns something different that I didn't anticipate that it was returning. Yeah, I had no idea you could pass level to flatten until just now. I'm not sure when I would use that. 
but I'm sure it's handy in some cases. I don't know. If you're listening be. and you happen to pass in a parameter to flatten, let us know. We'd like to find out what the use case for this would be. Yeah. So that's flatten and flatten app. A lovely combination. Our next method is unique, U-N-I-Q, which returns a new array, but only the ones that are not duplicated. So if you had like an array of one, two, two, three, it'll just return one, two, three. Yep. And it retains the first occurrence, which can be important because I've seen places where people Uh are like trying to iterate over authors. Let's say you have authors attached to a post and maybe the author roles are different and you want to list like everyone who worked on that post. Maybe you have an editor and their author and maybe the editor was also a co-author. So maybe the co-author did only one person edited it and you want to list all the authors. If you're iterating over authors and you're adding unique on it, you're only going to get the first two, even though if you're not specifying like, oh, if it's a role, like you kind of want to group by at that point. So I just wanted to call out that it is the first occurrence that gets retained because I've seen people trip up on that before. Oh, I thought it would return this one, but why is it uniquing and returning this one instead? And it has to do with the order in the array. I am going to be honest. I'm having trouble understanding your example. What is the problem again? So sometimes you have an array of items, let's say an array of objects, and there's actually something on the object that differentiates it from the other, like a role. So if we had a list of authors and they all have a role, if you want to make sure that no author is duplicated, you would add unique. But that's going to leave off someone who has maybe two different roles on that same record. Oh, okay. So if you're iterating that through is authors, good to know. you call unique, it's going to return the first occurrence of that person not maybe the one with the second role on it. And it depends like on how you set it up. But I just wanted to call that out that it does retain the first occurrence because I have seen people trip on that. Nice. Thanks for letting me know. And can you pass in a parameter or a block with this one? I have no idea. It looks like you can pass a block. With a block given, it calls the block for each element, identifies using method equal, and removes the elements for which the block returns duplicate values. Wow. So in their example, they're uniquing on the size of an element. So they're calling array.unique, and they're passing it a block where it's element, and then it turns element.size. In that instance, the array they have is A, 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 B, 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 B. So when I am looking at this, and if I call unique, without passing it a block, it's going to return that same array, right? Because every element is unique. It's Mm -hmm. A, 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 B, 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 B. So if you pass it a block and say element.size, you're saying, I want to return the unique list where it's basing it off element.size. So when you do that, it returns A, 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 because the size of each of these strings is one, two, or three. And that's the unique aspect. And it's so taking B doesn't get returned. A, right, because it's taking the first occurrences. Yeah, okay. So if you did something like a.reverse.unique, then you would probably get the Bs back instead of the A's. Correct. Cool. Learned something new. I felt like I knew that, but I haven't looked at that in a while. So that's how you would use, going back to my authors on the post example, you would unique on the role, maybe. So mm. you want like unique person from each role to be displayed. That is a great point. 
Next one is shuffle, which returns a new array with the elements of self shuffled self being the array that this is called on. I don't use this a lot. I use this sometimes when I do coding problems, but I don't usually use this in practice. And the only thing reason I could think of to use this in practice is if maybe a post has related posts and you want to show those in a random order. Most people would want to show them on the date they were created mm-hmm. or something. But if you want to show them in a random order, like, hey, you might like these posts. And then it just grabs a random order of posts and just displays them. But you can also pass random to it, which I did not know. And the optional random argument will be used as a random number generator. I might have to play around with that for a little bit. So the method that's after this is sample on an array. And I actually did use shuffle and sample in practice. So what sample is, it returns a random element from the array. And you can also pass in an argument to return however number that you want to get from this Okay, so if I'm trying to get, let's say, an array of five things and I need a sample of two things from it, it's randomly grabbing two things from it, right? I don't need to do shuffle.sample. Yes. So I'm wondering if I did not do shuffle.sample and I think I just did sample, but I think the original code might have been something like shuffle it and then grab me the first two items or something like right. that. Right. But in practice, we have, say, assessments and we only want to get a quiz of five things, then we can call a sample of five on that. And then it'll randomly return these five assessments. That way our learners can get like a different variety of questions each time they do the quiz. That makes a lot of sense. I've done a lot of online school. And so that maps perfectly to what I understand. Like sometimes you'll go through like a lesson assessment and you answer the questions and you write them all down. And then you don't send it to anyone because that would be cheating. But let's just say you <laughs> come back to that assessment and it's a completely different questions or it's a different order. And you're like, what happened here? That's a great use case for that. Yeah, that's cool. So moving on from sample and shuffle is count, which returns the count of specified elements. And if you don't pass it a block or an argument, it will return the count of all elements. So this is probably something a lot of people are familiar with. Maybe you're showing five posts on a page and you're paginating that, but you want to show the user the count of all posts, maybe at the top of the page, showing five out of a thousand posts. Dot count might be a thing you use there, I mean, depending on the pagination library, but removing that aspect, dot count would be a great way to do that, where you already have your list of objects and you can call dot count, get the count of them. And the nice thing with an array is it's not going to make a SQL query if those objects are already loaded into memory. So it's not using the SQL count. It's just counting the elements in the array. Because there are some methods in Active Record that use the SQL count, like calling count in SQL to calculate how many records there are. But dot count is an array method and it should not do that. Oh. Count executes a count every time. So in Active Record, it will, this is inappropriate most in general, it'll only use count if you always want to execute a SQL count right now. So then dot size (laughs) dang this got complicated this is something i always have to go back and look at because i'm like one of them is performant one of them is less performant but is very performant in certain circumstances and one of them you just shouldn't use but this is with the only with active record right dot count with just an array 
is not going to execute a SQL query. But for an active record relation, dot count will execute a SQL query. And most Rails developers should actually be using size in most places, I believe. Yeah, so when you use size, you don't use the count query and it uses a select. Only use count if you want to always execute a SQL count query. So I got that wrong. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime should not be one. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute. A monthly subscription with Honey Badger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which helps you stay in business. Get started today in as little as five minutes at honeybadger.io with plans starting at free. Yeah, you heard me, free. A big thank you to Honey Badger for sponsoring this episode of Ruby for All. When would you want to use a SQL count query versus not? When none of the records are loaded in memory at all, maybe. I think in general, you kind of don't want to do it if you don't have to for an active record relation. I have relearned this stuff several times and I always forget. There are several great articles out there. I'll put one in the show notes and people can check it out. And dot length is not something that you would want to use either? Not with active record. Okay. I think size is the one you want to use. If the relation is loaded, that is the query that the relation describes has been executed and we've already stored the result. So like, let's say you are getting a list of posts in your controller and you're using a where statement. So you're saving that into a post instance variable, let's say, that's loaded into memory. You can now use length and that won't be bad because you've already got the relation loaded. But if you were to use count, it's still going to execute this SQL query. But length, if it's already loaded into memory, length, I don't think will trigger the query. Okay, so I think I learned to just use size and not worry about whether it's loaded or not and trying to use length in those situations. Yes. So I guess if they're not loaded, I think size might still trigger a SQL query, but it's not going to run one as performance heavy as using length or count, I think. But you can also use dot load. So if you had like unread posts count, for instance, at the top of your page, you could do messages.load.size and then that will be performant, more performant than the others. Cool. We'll put an article to this in the show notes. I'm basically reading like something from Nate Berkepec. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you, Nate. Yes. So our next method is min max. And I like this just because I was using it on a problem. I don't know a use case for this, but what it does is it returns a two element array containing the minimum and the maximum value. I got a use case for you. Let's say you have a dashboard. It's like a trading dashboard for some financial crap that I don't understand. And you want to show the trade that made you the least money or that you lost the most money on. And you want to show the Mm. trade that has the best result. That could be a great use case for that. That's a good one. If you use a block, it's two parameters. So it would be like min max and then the block would be A and B. And then you could even use like the spaceship operator to say A dot size, spaceship B dot size. Please don't you ask me to explain the spaceship. spaceship. Op- Damn it. I was, was going to say, you brought up spaceship operator, so now you have to explain what a spaceship operator is. I truly cannot. Even if I tell you what it means, I still don't fully understand when to use this one. But it sounds simple, but it's like in, progress, in process, when do I use this? 
So what it is, it compares two objects and returns one if the first object's value is larger and zero if both values are equal and negative one if the second object's value is larger. <laughs> so the example is seven spaceship operator one and that returns one because the object on the left is greater than the one on the right. And if you have one spaceship operator one, that returns zero because they're both equal. And if you have one spaceship operator two, it returns negative one because the value on the right is larger than the one on the left. <laughs> you see why I didn't want to explain this? It's hard to explain this. <laughs> and why I will always look this up as well myself. I have not had to use the spaceship operator in practice. Have you ever had to? I've seen it used, but I've never written it. I understand it when I'm reading it, but in practice, it's like, okay, but I could just use like this other thing. Most of the time, there's another way to do it. And if your brain doesn't automatically know how the spaceship operator works and you've not done it a ton, then you're probably going to lean for the way you know how to do it. Got it. That makes sense. So array.select is our next one, which calls a block if given with each element of the array and returns a new array containing those elements of the array for which the block returns a truthy value. Does it return a new array? It does return an array. Yes, I think it returns a new array, but it only returns the ones that satisfy the condition that you gave it in the block. Right. And if you don't pass a block, it returns an enumerator instead of an array. You said it returns a what now? Enumerator. You might have to explain what an enumerator is now. Oh, no. So what I get. <laughs> enumerator is a class which returns both internal and external iteration. So... Most methods have two forms, a block form where the contents are evaluated for each item in the enumeration and a non-block form, which returns a new enumerator wrapping the iteration. That's all I got. <laughs> Do you ever use select or similar methods and don't pass in a block? No. Yeah, because if I'm using a select, I'm trying to find something in the array, typically, or like some specific use case. So normally I'm using map, not select, but... If I am using select, I am always passing a block. Do you always pass a block for map also? Pretty much. Okay. Actually, I can't think of a time when I haven't. Okay. Fun fact, you added this fun fact. Filter was not an alias before 2.5, it looks like. I don't know which Ruby version, but... So I was doing a Code Wars kata, and I was trying to use dot filter for something. I was trying to get back something that met some condition and it was like undefined method filter, no method error. And I noticed that I was on version 2.5. So in the kata, you can actually change the Ruby version to some of the problems to 3.0 if they have it, but this particular one did not have it. So then I went into my IRB and I was playing around with it and I realized that filter was not an alias until sometime between 2.5 and 3.0. Gotcha. I also remember the difference between a select and map. Select returns a new array filtered by the condition in the block. A map returns a new array built from the output of the block. So like a map, you could pass an X as the block argument and do X plus one. And then your new array would be every value in your original array plus one. But select is just going to do like a logical comparison and say like, I return everything where X is greater than two. So it's not like changing the data in place. 
for map, you will get back the same size array. But for select, you could get the same size array only if all of the conditions were true. Yeah, yeah. It's like for the map method, the array is going through a transformation and it's all like the same, but all the values could be different. And then for select, some of them are didn't make the cut. Right. Yeah. So you would use map if you wanted to change things inside of the array and select if you just want to conditionally choose some of the elements in the array. Cool. I thought it was kind of cool. We won't talk about these other methods, but these aliases... For example, maps alias is collect and filter select. We also have inject, reject, detect. Yep. Inspect. Which was, oh, and inspect. <laughs> We're at the end of our array list for now. And I think next. But there is one that you missed that I kind of want to bring up. It was one? an, you missed any. And I kind of like that one because you can do any, all, none. But basically, you can pass the any method and a block, and it will return true if any one of the elements met that criteria. You can also use any to figure out if there are any nil elements in the array. So like if you had an array of nil and false, And a lot of times you'll use this where you're like, okay, I don't want to render this list if something is nil inside of it. Where if you wanted to ignore the fact that there's nil inside of it, you would use compact, which is a method we didn't talk about, which basically just removes anything that's nil inside of the array and returns that array without those nil items. So you would do like, if it was nil and false dot any, that's going to return false. But if it's nil zero and false dot any, that's going to return true. And if it's an empty array and you call dot any, it returns false. So nil and false will cause it to be false. But if there's at least one true element, one true the element inside of the array, it will return true. Versus dot any versus dot all, which you talked about, which will return false if any element inside of the array is nil or false. And you also pass it a block, like you said. So like if you had zero, one, two, dot any, and you pass it a block where element is greater than one, it would return true. Because for that example, we're at zero, one, two. Is there an element greater than one in there? Yes, there is. So it evaluates it true. So yeah, I think those are all of the methods that we liked and or use in practice. Next week, we're going to look at hash. If we did not explain something well or we missed your favorite array method, let us know on Twitter, I guess. would be the best place because I do check the email. Just I'm not an emailer. So check us out. Let us know. I would be definitely interested in that, especially for the things where we're like, I don't know when I would use this. If you have a good example use case of what that is, let us know. We'll share that. Yep. Much appreciated if you do. Yeah. But I think that's it for this week. Julie, I'll catch you next week on the flip side. All right. See you next week. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening.